Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. This is the first episode of our second season. I already have several exciting guests lined up for season two. Be sure to subscribe to Hallowed Ground wherever you listen so you don't miss our bi-weekly episodes. Kicking off season two is Mariah Ilsley, education coordinator at the Patriots Hall of Fame in Foxborough, Massachusetts. See what I did there? I have an interest in pursuing museum education myself, so I was excited to chat with Mariah and learn about the robust educational programs offered by the Patriots Hall of Fame. Mariah and I spoke the day before the Bills-Patriots wildcard game. Even though the Pats lost that game, they've had a rich history going back to the old American Football League, and you'll hear soon about the unique ways Mariah helps kids learn through football and STEM. If you're new to the pod, after each episode's interview, I do a deep dive on a related subject in our overtime segment. Season 2's first overtime segment is about the 2001 divisional playoff game between the Raiders and Patriots, also known as the Snow Bowl or the Tuck Rule game. As you'll hear, this game had a big impact on Mariah's Patriots fandom. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Today on Hallowed Ground, I'm speaking with Mariah Ilsley, Education Coordinator at the Patriots Hall of Fame in Foxborough, Massachusetts. Mariah, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Thanks oh, thank for, you for well, having me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There we go. I got to get back in the uh, swing of things. To start, Mariah, I would love to hear about how you got into museum education at the Patriots Hall of Fame and what was kind of your, your path to get there. Yeah, for sure. So when I was an undergrad, I started working seasonally for the National Park Service, which was amazing. And I loved it. And I learned so much doing that. And then when I decided to pursue my master's degree, I went to UMass Boston to study public history, but also needed something that wasn't seasonal. I needed, you know, something to our our season at that time ran from April to November. So I needed something to fill November to April. And I worked a couple different types of jobs, <laughs> um, but was uh, very fortunate to get a guest services position at the Patriots Hall of Fame. And so I was working, you know, a couple hours a week doing that while I was in school, but they have a very robust education program at the Patriots Hall of Fame. And so I was pretty quickly tapped to start helping out with that and kind of guiding the students around and assisting uh, the main teacher, the education coordinator at the time, her name was Michelle. And so assisting with her in kind of being an assistant teacher and the program was so robust and there was actually such an extensive wait list at the time that they were able to bring on an assistant education coordinator for a couple days a week so we could have multiple school groups attending on the same day. So when they extended that position, they offered it to me and I loved it and it was perfect. And it was something that I really loved doing because I could practice those skills, enhance those skills, but I was still able to attend school. It was an evening school uh, for the most part. So I could still, you know, make it to class all the time, had plenty of time to do all my homework and all of that sort of stuff. But when Michelle left, it was uh, February of 2020, she moved on to a new position. And so I took over kind of in an interim capacity and then was hired to replace her as education coordinator in March of 2020. So that's kind of how I landed here. Okay. That's great. In March of 2020, I had my own kind of saga with my internship for my degree and you were starting a new job too. So kind of take me through those first few months on the job as COVID really hit in full force. 
it was wild. <laughs> and I am so lucky and fortunate that I had been here before because I had a grasp on what the job entailed and what all of our education programs were like. Uh, when we have in-person field trips there, the student's day is split between a STEM module, which takes about an hour to do. And we have about six or seven that we do regularly. And then a couple that we don't do quite as regularly for kind of like high school kids and then like second graders and that sort of stuff. But when COVID first hit, I actually did my orientation on a Monday and we were sent to work from home that Friday. So I had a week on the job in an official capacity. Um, <laughs> and that week was already kind of filled with lots of schools starting to cancel. And I'm trying to figure out how to reschedule everybody. And then we were sent to work from home and we were lucky in that we were able to pivot pretty quickly. Uh, we had lots of lesson plans that previous education coordinators had developed. And so I kind of tidied those up in the first couple weeks at home. We released those on our website for free. So anybody could go in and use them, added some like at home education components to those. And then we started working on what we called uh, fun activities from home, uh, which was things that families could do with their kind of grade school aged kids with stuff that they had lying around the house. And so they, we tried to cover a variety of different topics. Some of them we're very uh, kind of maintaining our STEM background that we use, but we also branched into, you know, social sciences and physical education and wellness and a whole variety of different activities, literally, like I said, that you can do at home with anything that you had lying around, which was a bit of a challenge because I realized that not everybody has the same stuff <laughs> lying around. So we tried to make it as universal as possible for that. Once we realized that this was going to extend longer than we initially had hoped. We started to think about how we could host our students because we had, you know, March to June fully booked. So what were we going to do for those students? What were we going to do for the students we'd already booked for uh, the next school year, uh, which is when we started to think more realistically about hosting virtual education. And so for that, I spent about a month trying to modify our in-person STEM modules, which are known for being very active and hands-on and group work based into something that schools could do if they were in school, because every school is doing a different thing. So for those ones who were at school that they could do at school with limited supplies, or if they were at home that kids could do at home, again, with limited supplies. So trying to meet each student where they were during this time. And that took a while to kind of make all of those changes, adapt everything. And then we had ordered an education, what we called an education cart, uh, which was a really fancy camera and a great microphone and a speaker system attached to a TV that I could wheel around the Hall of Fame and be really wherever I wanted to be. But it was COVID, so everything was delayed a little bit. We couldn't get that quite as soon as we had hoped to get that. So we were planning initially to launch our virtual education in like late November, early December, and we didn't end up launching it until January. But between January and June of 2021, we saw about 7,000 students virtually, multiple groups a day, which was an adventure, but a lot of fun as well. And a huge learning curve for me, it's very different being, uh, you know, in front of a group of 30 to like 65, 70 kids and keeping their attention that way to all of a sudden, every kid is at home and 
we were we didn't put a size limit really on the groups because we did have such a backlog that we were trying to provide the best program that we could to all of our students who were unable to see us in person. So we frequently have about uh, groups of 100 that I was doing all at the same time during that. Um, so how do you keep them focused and provide them with really the best quality program that you possibly can? And so it was a learning curve. You know, we learned how to focus for a little while and then we're going to take a break. You know, you have five minutes, go to the bathroom, get a drink of water, do what you need to do. And then we're going to regroup and focus again for another 20 minutes and <laughs> all of that sort of stuff. That's awesome. I love how adaptable everyone had to be in 2020 and 2021 and now in, even into 2022. And so can you talk about the basis and kind of backbone of the programs, which is that STEM curriculum? Because I love that. I think it's really important to educate kids in the STEM fields. And that may not be how I lean educationally, but I really think it's important for people to have a knowledge base in science and math and technology. So what's kind of the the backbone of those programs? Yeah, for sure. So as I said, STEM is really the focus of pretty much all of the programs that we do. And we want all of our programs to be exciting, hands-on activities for our kids where they get to explore different aspects of one of those STEM areas, science, technology, engineering, or math, but in a very relatable way. Not every student who comes to us is going to be a Patriots fan or a football fan or understand football and how it works, but it's something tangible that we can use. Every student regardless of whether they know how the sport is played or care about the sport, can look at a football and we can talk about why it's designed that way. Uh, we can talk about how uh, the laces are there for a reason, how it comes to a point for a reason, and how that football is a type of technology that is developed specifically for that sport. Whereas, you know, at the origins of football, the ball looked different and that's because the game was played differently. And so how they evolve over time and how helmets work and we get to develop different types of helmet prototypes and actually test them. We get to talk about really, like I said, a lot of fun, exciting topics, but through that football lens, which makes it a little more relatable for these students. Most of the students that we work with are middle school age. We have four programs that are developed specifically for a, uh, fifth graders, so eighth graders. And then we have uh, two programs that are developed specifically for third through fifth graders. We have one that we do for second graders and then a couple that we do for high school students. But really that middle school age group is what we work with most. And at that point, they care about so many different things. So how can you take something that is going to be with them every single day and turn it into a fun thing that they can actually get their hands on and understand? So that's really what we try to focus on uh, for all of our programming. That's great. What's the program that kind of sticks with them the most so they really get most excited about from your time? Our most popular program is called the Helmet Design Challenge. And for that, the students actually go through every single step in the engineering design process to learn about helmets, build helmet prototypes, and then test helmets. I think the part that I find most interesting, but they struggle with caring about, partially because it's at the end, is uh, kind of that reflection period. You know, what did you do? Why did it work? Uh, what would you do differently in the redesign process? <laughs> but with that, we give them a bag of materials. We talk about helmets. We get to show them helmets through Patriots helmets specifically from pretty much every era, every decade, every different type of helmet, starting with the old leatherhead helmets all the way through the newest, uh, the newest one, one we have is a Speedflex helmet. So going through really every different type of helmet from 
Leatherheads to speed flex helmets and how they have changed and the different components of them and how the shell works compared to how the padding works on the inside and how they have to work together to create a really truly successful helmet, a safe helmet. And then we give them a bag of essentially craft supplies. They get some confetti and some paper and popsicle sticks, you know, um, Chanel sticks, uh, you know, different stuff like that. And then are tasked with building either a shell or a pad for the inside of the helmet. And then we test them by dropping croquet balls on them. And so if you have a shell and we drop a one pound croquet ball on it, when you've made it really out of craft supplies, you really have to think about what you're going to do, how you're going to design that to protect the head uh, that would be on the inside of your helmet. So that was by far our most popular program. And when we have kids that come back with their families or if, you know, come in fifth grade and then come back in eighth grade, that's the module that they talk about the most. That's awesome. I think that's really unique, but it also really teaches kids not only working together, but also this is like an engineering process that people use. And then you're able to tie in that historical element with the leather helmets. And then now the very fancy, very safe helmets that mm-hmm. are in design today. And I think you talked about that at the virtual conference mm-hmm. in I think November for the International Sports Heritage Association. I really enjoyed that presentation and that kind of prompted this conversation, me reaching out to you. And I'm really glad that we're able to uh, talk, especially as um, the football playoffs are here too. So have you always been a football fan or a Patriots fan? And I'm always curious about that, whether people in sports museums like sports, they kind of liked it from the beginning and just kind of take me through that. Yeah. So growing up, I was a baseball fan. I religiously watched the Red Sox, played baseball, eventually switched over to softball. My dad was a much bigger Patriots fan. And so I have very fond memories of being like four or five years old and watching the Patriots back when they, you know, still had the the royal blue jerseys and uh, not understanding what was happening, but really kind of just enjoying that time spent uh, with my dad on Sunday afternoon, sometimes with my grandfather. And then the snowball game, which we're coming up to the 20th anniversary of happened. And that was the first game that I remember watching and being really excited about. I was understanding what was happening, why people were running certain ways, (laughs) all of, uh, you know, why the ball was going. And then that kick, the Adam Vinatieri kick, and it was uh, the last game in that stadium. And it could have been the end of our season and nobody was, you couldn't see on the TV whether it was a successful kick or not, but you could hear the roar from the crowd. And that was, that was really when I became a Patriots fan, that moment. <laughs> I'm sure you're not the only one. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's great. Um, is that one of the most uh, kind of resonant events in the Patriots history, especially recent history? It is for me. We do have this really awesome exhibit in our museum where we actually call it, we've nicknamed it the snow globe because you get to go inside and uh, watch a really nice compilation video about that game and about that kick. And you get to, they interviewed lots of different players who were there that day. One of my favorite quotes from it was a uh, lawyer Malloy just being like, I didn't feel like it was a great game. I was cold. Like, <laughs> 
so getting to hear them talk about it and then remembering it myself is I think awesome. And then we actually have a field goal kick where you can try to kick that field goal that Adam Finitari made. And it's really hard and people don't think it's going to be hard, uh, but very few people actually successfully make that kick, but it's really fun to try. So <laughs> that's cool. Kicking is one of those things that looks easy on TV, mm. but you try it and it's very difficult. I'm yes. certainly not a good <laughs> place kicker at all, but I think that's really awesome that you're able to host field trips. And what's that kind of been like more recently? Have you been back in person? Or We have. We have been very fortunate to be able to host in-person field trips. We are not at the levels that we were before COVID, where we had groups every day and multiple groups several times a week. And we had a, a good number in the fall. And now with this current spike, it's dipped a little bit, but pretty much from March to May, we or March to June, excuse me, we are fully booked for our field trips. So assuming that we don't have too much more in the way of a rise here in Massachusetts. Um, we also have a bus driver shortage here in Massachusetts right now, which is causing a lot of schools to have problems in just getting to us. So um, we're hoping, we're keeping our fingers crossed that we will uh, keep that full schedule. Um, if everything goes to plan, we will be keeping that full schedule. But things have changed for that. We've had to kind of adapt how we run our programs. We normally, we are very fortunate in that we are right in front of the stadium, right next to Patriot Place, where there is a, an incredible number of restaurants that the schools can take advantage of for lunch if they're interested in doing so. We see a decent number of schools doing that, but if they bring a bad lunch, we used to have the, the entire group eat at the same time in our classroom space. So you would get up to about 100 kids eating at the same time in one room, which there was plenty of space to do it. But now to try to to keep them as separate as possible, not overcrowd, keep our social distance. We've had to stagger our lunch times. So you end up with still the same amount of time for the uh, STEM module, but you end up with a longer time in the museum. So trying to kind of balance that, keep the students engaged through the entire visit. Um, and then we built in mask breaks into our schedule. So they're not masked from the time they get here until the time they leave. So we try to give them a couple minutes, you know, before they get on the bus, when they first arrive, after they've been through the museum or through the STEM module, we try to give them a couple minutes where they can take off their masks, kind of have that break. Um, and it helps keep everybody just a little bit more focused during the day. Okay. I hadn't thought about that really, but that's a good, good point. And especially with kids, making sure that they have those breaks too. Going back to the STEM um, implementations, I believe there's a teacher of the year program. And I think that's really neat yeah. where you recognize STEM teachers. And is that one of your favorite parts of the museum? It's really fun and exciting. It is a an, an award that Mr. Kraft first announced in 2012. We hosted the uh, Massachusetts STEM Summit at the stadium that year. So our first awardee was in the next year. It was in 2013. And for that, we received nominations for teachers all across the state of Massachusetts. And then we reach out to them, invite them to fill out an application. And then there is a committee of people that includes me and then people from the Massachusetts uh, Department of Education. We review all of those applications. We, from there, pick the top five candidates 
and then interview those five candidates. Once you make it into the top five, you get some sort of award, but the first place winner, uh, the eventual STEM teacher of the year is given a $5,000 grant from the Patriots Foundation. They're invited to serve on the governor's STEM council for a year, and then we give them tickets to a game as well. And then those four runners up each receive a $1,000 grant from Raytheon Technologies. So once you kind of make it into that top five, it's, uh, it's exciting regardless. But yeah, it's a really, incredible program and seeing everything that these teachers accomplish in their classrooms and how STEM education has changed, even just from when I was in school to what these teachers are able to do and how so many schools are, instead of having an elementary school teacher that focuses on all of the subjects, they will have specific STEM teachers that travel from classroom to classroom and really kind of get into those STEM subjects and thinking about you know, questions, why do things work a certain way and how they implement that. It's, it's really incredible and such an inspiration to see uh, what they are able to do on a day-to-day basis, very frequently with cardboard. And so when they get these $5,000 grants or $1,000 grants, they have done some really incredible things with them and bringing technology into those classrooms so they can get uh, different types of programming kind of running for not only their individual class, but for their entire school. So it's been a really incredible experience to be involved with that. That's awesome, Mariah. That's really impactful. And that just kind of continues the focus on education. And I think that's really, really special that you all do that at the Patriots Hall of Fame. What is some of the other technology that you use? Because I know you were talking about confetti and, and cardboard and some of the lower end pieces of technology, but I'm sure there's some other high tech components to the museum and the the Hall of Fame. So what are the, the things that especially kids are kind of drawn to technology wise? Yeah, for sure. So we, when we first opened, so Raytheon Technologies is our, is our naming partner. And so they worked with us extensively in the development of your museum and the different types of technology that we, we have in our museum that everybody can experience as they come through. So we have a really incredible area of our museum. The exhibit is called Inside the Game. And as you're there, you're actually kind of on the field. We have a turf floor. You can stand in a huddle with mannequins that are the actual appropriate size for those football players. You can hear Tom Brady calling plays. You can, you know, test your reaction time against various players. We have a really, uh, what I think is a lot of fun breakdown uh, that we call the Bellistrator, where you can pick a play from the playbook and then Coach Belichick breaks down how that play actually works for you and you can see footage of it. Uh, you can, you know, test your vertical jump height against uh, Devin McCourty. You can test your weight with Vince Wilfork. So that is a very interactive part of our museum where people, no matter how old they are, are having a whole lot of fun there. Uh, But really everything in our museum that's all full of touch screens and different types of technologies really spread out throughout the entire thing. We do have a couple different games that people can play. We have one that's kind of a math based quiz show that Pat Patriot hosts. And so you can kind of choose what level you want to play at, uh, but then he asks you math questions and you have to answer them right to move your player down the field to score a touchdown, or you can try to throw a pass or kick a ball and they'll give you different, you know, scenarios. The wind is blowing at, you know, 12 miles an hour at this direction. Are you going to change your force or your, uh, you know, your Y angle, all these different things to try to can uh, successfully kick that 
ball or complete that pass. And then in the Super Bowl part of our museum, uh, which is a huge part of our museum, we have what we call pods, where there's one devoted to each Super Bowl win. And you can, through that, through the kiosks there, explore, you know, highlights from the game. You can look at the rosters, the playbook. Uh, you can view all of the scoring plays in those games. You can, the Malcolm Butler interception from Super Bowl 49, we, you can reenact that and uh, you'll actually get to catch the ball. And then you can, it's kind of a nice take home for you because it'll take a picture of you. You can email it to yourself. We have a green screen where you can take photographs. And then the actual Hall of Fame part of our museum to honor our Hall of Famers. Um, we have, you know, a really great induction ceremony uh, generally in uh, the summer or in the fall. But in addition to getting their red jacket and their trophy, they also get their name on the wall. But we have four stations attached to 30-foot pylons. And as you interact with these stations, it's uh, really essentially a database of our Hall of Famers. But if you click on one, it'll show you their statistics, a biography about them. It'll show you a highlight reel. And then it kind of changes what's on that 30-foot pylon. You can see pictures of them, videos of them, uh, which is a lot of fun. And we see a lot of our guests spending a, a decent amount of their time in that space. I love stuff like that. I love the, mm. the kind of visual learning piece of museums and halls of fame where you can just sit and read a biography of somebody and, and really dig mm. in on their, their life specifically, and then go test your weight against Vince Wilfork or something. I love how that it's kind of the fun piece and the learning piece. And that's what your There's kind of job something is. something for everyone. Yes. And I was going to ask you too, like what kind of education programs are there for adults? Because I think a lot of times it's mainly field trips or youth programs, which are great, but um, adults can certainly be educated as well. So what, what do you all do for them? Yeah, so uh, the bulk of what we do right now is kind of K through 12 field trip education. Um, at various times in our history as a museum, we have done different programs for different age groups. And that's something that we are working on expanding right now as well. So we are uh, kind of currently developing and growing those guided tours. We do tours right now for, uh, they're kind of advertised right now. We're kind of building our demographic with the local libraries and we'll take them on a live tour around the museum and we'll get to kind of, you know, demonstrate some of those things that we talked about. We can try to kick the field goal. We can, you know, test our, we'll probably not test our weight, but you know, some of the other interactives uh, that we can do with them. And they really kind of get a hands-on look at everything. We pretty frequently, at least before COVID, would have a decent number of, of like senior centers that would come and do uh, visits and tours with us. And then whenever we do any sort of activity, it is always family oriented. So anybody, no matter how old or how young they are, can come and participate in these. Between Christmas this year and New Year's, we did an activity every single day. And so we had one day where we, we called them reindeer games and people would make reindeer out of tubes of rolled paper, which we would then launch. So depending on how you built it, it's going to determine a little bit how far it travels. And that was a lot of fun. And then on New Year's Eve, we had a series of activities where we made uh, confetti launchers out of toilet paper rolls and balloons. And we uh, made harmonicas out of uh, rubber bands and popsicle sticks and all sorts of stuff like that, which is definitely more uh, family oriented. But like I said, anybody can come and participate. Kids of all ages, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, having people from all demographics, all ages, 
And that's what I like about sports so much generally is like different political spectrums, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different um, Mm. races and religions. It's all kind of unified under the Patriots or under uh, the Chiefs like I am and stuff like that. I really love that about sports. And it's probably cool to see like fans of other teams come in. I know I asked Brian Morey, the executive director of uh, Patriots Hall of Fame, this question last season. But what's it like having opposing fans come in and kind of check out the Patriots Hall of Fame? It's a lot of fun, in part because we have had an incredible 20 years. Yes. But also the fans who come in are there because they care in in some way, shape or form. And I think our museum, I'm there every day. And so I'm used to it. It's it's exciting, but I know what I'm going to see when I round the corner and our opposing fans don't. And so when they round the corner and they see uh, the Super Bowl trophies or they see the Malcolm Butler interception catch or they see uh, Gino Capaletti's kicking cleats from the 1960s and it has a square toe and they're kind of taken aback by that. And so getting to interact with them and share what we find really special, I think is is a special experience for everybody who's involved. We, uh, before COVID actually received quite a few international visitors to our museum as well. We have large followings in both Mexico and Germany for the Patriots. There's huge fan groups in both of those countries. And so they would come and visit us as as well, which was always kind of cool. Do you have a favorite story or memory at the museum where it was just a really impactful event or had a really kind of unique field trip or anything that you would want to share as a, a favorite story? I think my favorite thing that we have done at the Hall of Fame that I've kind of been directly involved with was a STEM night that we hosted in honor of the 2021 uh, Massachusetts STEM Teacher of the Year Award winner. She was from Fitchburg, which is not really close to Foxborough. And normally when we honor our winners, it's at a like a daytime event with other teachers, which is fun and exciting. Uh, But with this, we invited kids from everywhere. We invited them from her school. We invited local kids. It was at night. It was a free event. So people got to come and explore the museum. The Lieutenant Governor came, Josh Kraft came. We had different STEM activities set up all around the museum. So people could go and, you know, they could do an activity and then come back and kind of listen to the speeches or they could focus on whatever it was that they wanted to focus on. And I think it was a really incredible event, but you could really feel the sense of community during that event. Everybody who was there was there because they love the Patriots, because they support STEM education, and because this teacher is amazing. And so to have everybody there uh, with that same idea, with that same mission was, um, it was really special. I'm sure that sounds so special. I love how you not only teach football and history through the STEM education, but you also at the Patriots Hall of Fame recognize and honor teachers that are doing this every day and really implementing different forms of technology. And um, they've dedicated their lives to STEM education. And that's mm-hmm. that's really special to recognize. And I love that there's a, a football tie into that. And, and certainly the, the celebration at the STEM night sounds like a lot of fun too. So This has been awesome, Mariah. Thank you so much for your time and for the work that you do at the Patriots Hall of Fame. Can you talk about where we would find the Hall of Fame, both in person and online? Yeah. So our physical address is one Patriot Place, Foxborough, Massachusetts, 02035. 
I always have to think about that because my home zip code is 02053. And so I need to make sure Ooh, I say it the right way. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and our website is uh, com. So www.patriotshalloffame.com. That's awesome. I really appreciate the work that you do. And I just uh, am grateful for your time and for you being a guest on Hallowed Ground, Mariah. Well, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. I don't remember watching the 2001 AFC Divisional Playoff game between the Raiders and Patriots, but I've since learned it was packed with legendary players and coaches and had an incredible ending. This game was a step towards the Patriots' first Super Bowl win in the Bill Belichick-Tom Brady era. Check out this episode's show notes for links to stats and video from this game, which occurred 20 years ago. Coming into the divisional round with an 11-5 record, the Patriots won the AFC East behind a new quarterback. A 24-year-old Tom Brady replaced an injured Drew Bledsoe in Week 2 and never looked back. The Pats won six straight games to finish the regular season. On the other hand, the Raiders finished 10-6 but had a three-game losing streak, stumbling into the playoffs. They beat the Jets 38-24 in the wildcard round before heading to a snowy Foxborough, Massachusetts. Playing in 20-degree temperatures and with heavy snow falling throughout the game, the offenses were tested throughout the evening. There's a reason Mariah called it the Snow Bowl. Following a scoreless first quarter, Raiders receiver James Jett caught a pass in the end zone from Rich Gannon for a touchdown, with 12-14 left in the second quarter. The offenses stagnated from there into halftime. 7-0 Raiders. The Pats began the third quarter with the drive, culminating in an Adam Vinatieri field goal, but the Raiders answered with two Sebastian Janikowski field goals to make it 13-3 heading into the fourth quarter. With 7.52 left in the fourth, Tom Brady scampered into the end zone for a six-yard touchdown run. 13-10 Raiders. Then, the teams traded punts and the Patriots made a critical third-down stop before the Pats got the ball back with two minutes left, still down three. On a first down from the Oakland 42, Brady's college teammate at Michigan, Charles Woodson, knocked the football from Brady's hand. Raiders recovered. Game virtually over, right? Wrong. With under two minutes left, the officiating crew reviewed the play and it was instead ruled an incomplete pass. Here's the actual tuck rule. NFL Rule 3, Section 22, Article 2, Note 2. When an offensive player is holding the ball to pass it forward, any intentional forward movement of his arm starts forward pass, even if the player loses possession of the ball as he is attempting to tuck it back toward his body. Also, if the player has tucked the ball into his body and then loses possession, it is a fumble. This rule had actually gone against the Patriots earlier in the season, during the game with the Jets where Brady stepped in to replace Bledsoe. The tuck rule was repealed in a vote by NFL owners in 2013. With 32 seconds left, the Patriots scrambled to try and clear a snow-free area for Adam Vinatieri to attempt a game-tying field goal. In what's known as the toughest kick in NFL history, he just sneaks the ball over the crossbar. We're headed to overtime. The Patriots win the coin toss, march down the field thanks to short passes from Brady, and Vinatieri lines up again. In what became the last play in Foxborough Stadium's history, the kick is good! Patriots advance to Pittsburgh for the AFC Championship, the Raiders go home. This game is very consequential in the long run. It was the last game before Gillette Stadium opens in Foxborough the following season. The Raiders let go of John Gruden after the game, and the Pats were on their way to a dynasty. You can find the Patriots Hall of Fame online at PatriotsHallOfFame.com or at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, right outside Boston, Massachusetts. In the show notes, you can find links to the museum's website and social media pages. I really appreciate Mariah for being my first guest of Season 2. She does really impactful work. Thanks for listening to Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. Check out our past episodes with guests from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, and much more. Also, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps Hallowed Ground gain exposure. Thanks in advance. Until next time, sports fans.